Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Sutton service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. For anyone who is new, we are spending most of this year going through the Gospel of Luke, and we're up to Luke chapter 3. Two weeks ago, we did the second half of Luke 3, which is the genealogy of Jesus. You can listen to that on the website. Uh, Today, we're going to do the first half of Luke 3, and uh, rather than reading the passage in one go, we're actually going to do it in little chunks. I think that'll help us better communicate uh, what uh, Luke is saying in this passage. So we're going to start at Luke chapter 3 and verse 1. The words will be on the screen uh, for you to follow along. Uh, This is what Luke writes. He says this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Okay, let's just pause here for a moment. Uh, Now, to the original readers of this passage, uh, this is way more than a list of names. There's emotion here. There's story here. And that is important for the context that follows. Uh, Silly example, but if I was saying to you, I want to tell you a story, and it starts in Berlin, Germany in 1934. Adolf Hitler has just become leader of the nation. You would all know I'm doing way more than simply setting the date and the time. There's a story that we're all familiar with which sets the context for what follows, not actually just in Luke 3, but actually for the rest of the gospel. And that context is important. So what exactly is the context? Well, let's just briefly, for a couple of minutes, look at these names and see what they represent. First thing we read is this is the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So the Roman Empire is almost at its zenith. There's a map coming up uh, showing its expanse. It basically stretches all the way uh, from Britain to India. And Tiberius is the guy at the heart of it. Uh, Tiberius was the son of Augustus Caesar. Uh, Augustus was self-proclaimed the son of God on earth. Uh, Parliament declared him the same. Temples were built in his honour. Sacrifices uh, were offered in his name. Uh, He actually declared himself the light of the world come to earth. And he actually inaugurated a 12-day celebration of his birth called the 12 Days of Advent, where people wore red and green in his honour. That's where some of our Christmas uh, traditions come from. Uh, All of which is to say he had a big God complex. And Tiberius is his son. So in many ways he's seen as the son of the Son of God, a picture of both of them uh, coming up uh, in a sec. Uh, And of course, Tiberius is not God. So how do you rule over uh, such a large expanse? Well, uh, basically two things. Number one, you do it through terror, violence, and fear. And that basically marked Tiberius's reign. Uh, One historian describes his reign like this. It was full of briberies, insults, robberies, outrages, wanton injuries, frequent executions without trial, and endless savage ferocity. Like This is the reign of Tiberius. His very name would make the readers go, oh, yeah, we remember him. Uh, Two main historians at the time, Josephus and Tacitus, uh, they estimate that the Romans killed over a million Jews during this period, which if you consider the condensed population sizes is absolutely humongous. And their method of execution of preference was uh, crucifixion. In fact, around about three miles from where Jesus was born in Nazareth, in a place called Sepphoris, Around about 4,000 Jews uh, were killed when Jesus was about four years old. Uh, Jesus and his father Joseph may well have worked in Sepphoris on the many building projects going on there. So this is really close to home. And their method of execution of preference 
with crucifixion. Uh, one historian writes this, the Roman soldiers out of rage and hatred amused themselves by nailing their prisoners in different postures. And so great was their number that space could not be found for the crosses nor crosses for the bodies. All of which is to say, like, if you're not Roman, this is just a horrible, horrible place to live. But of course, secondly, Tiberius can't just do this through horror and fear on his own. He needs some henchmen to basically rule on his behalf. And that's what's happening in Israel. So the next uh, slide, um, Luke chapter 3, gives us uh, four names. They've all got the name Tetrarch after them, which basically means fourth part. Uh, if you just put the next uh, slide up, it shows you a little map. You probably can't see it, but basically you've got the Roman procurator down in Judea at the bottom. That's Pontius Pilate, basically a Roman puppet. Uh, but still known for his hostility to the Jews. Uh, up at the top uh, and in the east, you've got Philip and Lysanias. Uh, they're minor characters in the story because Jesus doesn't really travel there or engage with them. But then in Galilee and this orange patch down the side, you've got Herod Antipas. Uh, Herod uh, is a focus of uh, Luke's Gospel and uh, Luke 3. Herod uh, Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, now, uh, Herod the Great, I won't uh, spend much time on him, but he was basically uh, a psychopath. Uh, he was part Jewish, so he proclaimed himself uh, king of the Jews, uh, set up a whole load of images that people should worship in his honor, uh, which in a nation where one of the key commands is don't set up any images and worship them is like blasphemy uh, in the extreme. And he also rules through violence uh, and terror. Uh, it was Herod the Great who built the Great Palace at Masada. A picture of Masada is coming up on the screen. Um, this was and is a technological wonder. Uh, they still don't really know to this day how he built it, like marble tiles, heated baths. Uh, there's still barely any equipment around today that has the strength to hold the stones that were imported in uh, to build it. Uh, small aside, because I find this stuff interesting, uh, Herod the Great wanted to build a similar palace in the south of the nation on a mountain, and he couldn't find a suitable mountain, so he built a mountain. Uh, it's called the Herodium. Uh, it's coming up on the next uh, slide. And uh, some commentators think this mountain was visible from the Mount of Olives. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, if you've got faith in me, as small of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be uprooted and thrown into the sea, uh, some commentaries, though not all, uh, to be fair, some think that's the mountain he's referring to. In other words, if you have faith in me, the kingdoms of this earth, of violence and greed and lust for power, they're all going to crumble. And my kingdom of self-sacrificial love will expand and endure uh, through all time. Uh, that's uh, Herod the Great. It was that Herod who actually killed all the babies when Jesus was born because he wanted no other threat to his power, no other uh, king of the Jews uh, emerging. Uh, so uh, Herod the Great has Herod Antipas. And uh, of course, uh, he also rules uh, through kind of violence uh, and uh, terror, but he's also got a very big property portfolio to maintain now. How's he going to do it? He basically does it through excessive taxes on the nation. And a list of the taxes uh, are coming up on the screen. Uh, it's estimated that the Jews were taxed between 80 and 90% of their income. So they're left with basically nothing. And this is important for the context of Luke's gospel because it means the people that Luke is writing to are largely penniless peasants. I mean, they're, they're just a little above being enslaved. They have nothing. There are two other names mentioned in the first verses of Luke chapter 3. They are Caiaphas and Annas. And they're significant because they're to represent the priesthood. 
Like these are the guys that are supposed to stand in the gap. Only they're not doing that. They're based in Jerusalem. That's where a small minority of wealthy elites live. So they have a very comfortable lifestyle and they don't want to challenge the status quo as a result. So they're just kind of happy, enjoying comfort and luxury, relatively speaking, while the rest of their people and the nation lies in poverty. So they're basically greedy sellouts. So when Luke writes this list of names, it's not just a list of names. Like if you've ever watched TV and there's like a political figure that makes you go, ah, or there's some headlines that make you groan at the state of the world, that's what Luke 3, 1 and 2 is doing. It's like symbols of oppression and a reminder of the brokenness in which they find themselves. And it's into this brokenness that we read this. The word of the Lord comes to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Notice how already he is contrasted to Caiaphas and Annas. They're in luxury, he's out in the wilderness. And in this broken, needy place, God is speaking again after 400 years of silence. What's God going to say? Let's go back to the passage and read. The words will be on the screen. John says this, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight. The rough way smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. Uh, let's just pause again. What's happening here? Well, John is basically announcing the arrival of the king into this broken situation. Uh, I'm going to guess you've uh, all seen like period dramas on TV where there's some kind of big ball and there's a servant on the door who says, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone stops and looks to the door and then the servant announces the Duke of Buckingham and in walks the important guest and everybody applauds that's what John's doing. He's saying, guys, the king is coming. More than that, the king is coming quickly. Uh, when he talks about um, valleys being filled in and mountains made low and crooked roads made straight, uh, obviously in those days, kings would travel by chariot. And to make the journey as swift as possible, they would literally fill in valleys and level mountains and make crooked roads straight. So basically, John's saying, look, guys, the king is coming and he's coming quickly. Like This is amazing news. And best of all, he's coming to sort out the mess that you find yourselves in. All people are going to see the salvation of God. Uh, more than that, uh, John, in contrast to Caiaphas and Annas, is standing up to the powers that are corrupt and keeping the people enslaved. We read this uh, in Luke 3. John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done. Uh, so briefly, the next slide is uh, Herod's family tree. Uh, it's a little bit like, I imagine, an episode of EastEnders to be. Not that I've ever seen it. So you've got Herod Antipas there, son of Herod the Great. He marries Herodias, his brother's wife. They then have Salome. Salome is going to be one that convinces her mother to convince Herod to have John the Baptist beheaded. So where Caiaphas and Annas are just sitting in luxury, John the Baptist is standing up to Herod and saying, everything you're doing is wrong and it's going to cost him his life. This is the message of hope everybody is longing for. Uh, I'm going to guess most of you have seen uh, Batman. And uh, in Batman, um, there's a picture of Gotham coming up. Uh, Gotham City is deliberately painted as dark and eerie and sinister, like threat lurks around every corner. And in the midst of uh, all of that mess, the bat symbol is projected into the sky. 
And the bat symbol represents two things. Firstly, to the people who are suffering in Gotham, guys, hope is coming. Salvation's on the horizon. But secondly, it is also a message to the crooks and criminals, someone's coming to sort you out too. Like, this is John's message. It's everything that they're hoping for. Only, 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 at this point, John's message takes a surprising turn. Uh, Let's go back to the passage and see what he has to say. He says, John says to the crowds, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This is like the school report that you didn't want and you didn't expect. Like John's message is basically this, the king is coming. He's coming quickly. He's coming to sort out the mess that you find yourself in and you are not ready for him. Now, there's a lot of um, uh, metaphors in here around um, being a child of somebody. Um, the people are clearly thinking, like, we're, we're children of Abraham. That's enough. If you were here two weeks ago and heard the story on the genealogy of Jesus, you'll know uh, the second of the five covenants is this promise that through Abraham's seed, the whole world is going to end up being blessed. They're like, yeah, we're, we're, we're children of Abraham. That's, that's enough. And John says, you think you're children of Abraham, you're, you're not. You're basically children of snakes. Like, you're a brood of vipers. Like, this is very emotive language. Snakes, even from Genesis, from as early on in Scripture as there, are symbols of evil and Satan. Like, being a child in this culture is about more than simply knowing, like, who your parent is, who your bloodline is. Uh, it's, it's a bit like being in the likeness of the one uh, who's gone before. We do this today a bit. You know, we, we might say to one, one of the children in church, oh, you do look like your dad, which uh, to my kids is like the worst possible uh, insult in the world. Um, in fact, I would love you all. You have my permission. Brody, me and Emily, find my kids at the end of church and just say, you do look like your dad. I would love that. They're going to need therapy anyway. Let's have fun along the way. That's all I'm going to say, okay? But this is more about simply looking like them, it's actually about being a representative of those who've gone before you. So John says, you you think you're a representative of the great father of faith. You look nothing of the sort. You look more like the surrounding culture than you do the God that you are called to represent. The king is coming. He's coming quickly. He's coming to sort out the mess in which you find yourselves, and you're not ready for him. You look more like the culture roundabout than you do the God who you're called to represent. And as I was reflecting on this, I just started asking myself the question. If John the Baptist were around today, would his message to me be any different? Now, I, I hear lots of talk amongst uh, not just church leaders, but amidst people who like followers of Jesus uh, in the UK right now, uh, and the same in America actually as well, Uh, I've met some across Europe, who are carrying this longing for revival, for God to move in power in our nation, the like of which really none of us have ever seen. Just indulge me for a moment, let's just imagine God was coming in all his magnificent glory and power. Do I look more like the God who I'm called to represent, or more like the culture in which I live? 
As I reflected on this, I just found it deeply challenging. Uh, I came across a book last year, uh, which is called The Power of Your Senses. And at the heart behind the book is basically, um, we are more shaped by the environment in which we live, like way more than we might like to admit. Like we all like to think, you know, we're captain of our ship, master of our fate, you know, we're autonomous selves. Uh, the reality is actually far from that. And it's full of like really interesting research. Well, at least I, I find it interesting. Uh, let me just give you one experiment. Uh, they, they took a group of people and they put them in one of two rooms. Uh, in one room, they got them thinking about money. They got them counting money. They got them doing like word searches with like money words in. And in the other room, they got them just uh, thinking about a neutral subject. I think it was paper or something like that, counting paper. And uh, I've actually got a video uh, of uh, some of this footage. If you want to play the video now, uh, and I'll basically uh, talk over it. So in, in each of these two rooms, they're either like, thinking about money um, or they are thinking about paper. Have you got the video, Josiah? Can you, um, can you play it? And um, as they're doing this kind of study... Um, once they have finished this study, they leave the room. They think they've finished, but they've not. And they end up finding somebody who accidentally drops a whole load of folders and papers on the floor. Now, the first person you see, they have been in the room where they are not, not thinking about money. And as you can see, they very kindly stop to help the person in need. Every other person you see in this video has been in the room that is thinking about money. And you will see they walk past the person in need again and again and again and again and again. And I kind of thought, if, if people are shaped that much by the things that we think about, what is the culture doing to us right now? You know, every single day uh, we are hearing about the cost of living crisis. And it is one. But the very language can make you and I feel like, oh... Fear, anxiety, uncertainty about the future. And as I'm bombarded with this message every single day, am I coming to church on Sundays more focused on myself? Am I metaphorically speaking walk, walking past people who are in need because I'm so consumed with my challenges and my world? Or am I trusting in the God who provides in times of plenty and times of famine? Do I look more like the culture roundabout or more like the God whom I'm called to represent. And what about all the other narratives that are in our culture right now? Uh, I shared this a while ago, and I will repeat this a few times, because I think that there's, there's a benefit in repetition, and I think there's something for uh, the church in this. Um, I went to a, um, an event at the end of last year with about 50 church leaders from across the UK, and it had a, a big impact on me uh, personally. And uh, Pete Gregg, uh, who leads 24-7 Prayer, kind of opened the event, and uh, talked about this kind of heart and longing for revival. And then a guy called Pete Hughes stands up. He leads King's Cross Church in North London. And uh, he said, all, all around us uh, right now, there are like secular narratives. Like there are narratives, like, and they kind of wash over us every single day. And he said, they sound like the kingdom of God, but they are not actually the kingdom of God because there is no king and there is no cross. Like one example would be, hey, you be you. Be authentic, you know, find out who you are inside and live it out. And it sounds like the kingdom because it sounds so gracious and accepting and authentic. But if you listen to it, it's not the kingdom of God because firstly, there's no king. Like in that narrative, you're the king. And secondly, there's no cross. There's no acknowledgement that what may be going on in here may be part of the problem and might need dealing with. 
And these narratives are washing over us. And smuggled into these narratives are the idols of our age. And these idols are bleeding the church of life and power. In other words, if I'm shaped enough by just thinking about money, all these other narratives can in effect lead me into what the Bible would call idolatry. And I could end up worshipping idols and it causes me to lose the life and power of God that could otherwise be mine. You and I could be inadvertently worshipping idols. Now, I totally uh, believe that no one is going to go home from church today and find a little statue and bow down uh, before them and say, you're my God. You know, at least I hope you're not going to do that. But idolatry does happen today. It just looks a little bit different. Let me give you a really silly, um, slightly embarrassing example from my own life. At least I'm embarrassed uh, by this. Um, uh, last, last week, I was thinking about this talk, and I just had a really busy day, busy few days. And uh, I, I went and sat on the sofa and it was one of those moments I'm sure you've never had them where I sat on the sofa and I thought I'm going to be here for some time and I was kind of double screening but I ended up watching about four or five episodes back to back of Escape to the Country. Now um, this is church, I am forgiven, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, don't judge me okay but as like episode after episode after episode of Escape to the Country like rolled on in the background of my life. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, like, what are the narratives in this show? It's a great show, by the way. There's nothing wrong with it. Don't feel guilty when you watch it. But I was like, what are the narratives? There are narratives like this. You can have anything that you want. Now, of course, logically, I know that's not true. But that's not what every TV advert tells me. It's not what every shop window tells me. There's a narrative, live for comfort. That'll make you happy. Run away from your troubles. Like, seek an easy life away from where it might be hard work. That's the goal for your life. That's what will make you happy. And as I was aware of this, I began to realize my heart is drawn by this. I am attracted to this. If I live my life where I give in to those narratives, what can happen is that becomes what I worship. That's idolatry. I give my heart to something in the hope that it will reward me with the life that secretly I want. In the Old Testament, it was like, worship this God, they'll give you rain in season. Or victory over your enemies. Now it's live for this. And you'll have the life that your heart secretly longs for. Do I look more like the God whom I'm called to represent? Or more like the world roundabout? There's a theologian and writer called Tony Riker who's brilliant on this. And I would encourage you to read anything that he writes. So his recent book, Competing Spectacles, if you can keep, uh, get hold of it, is absolutely fantastic. And he wrote about this recently. And I'm just going to read you a short quote um, from the article. Um, he says this, We are mirrors. And the whole metaphor of the human being reflecting its environment, context, idols, gods is absolutely core from the beginning to the end of the canon of Scripture. Like This is a key part of what the Bible's all about. What we call worship is also a matter of our identity. Whether or not we see it, worship is the fundamental dynamic of our moulding. What I give my heart to shapes my life. And this is why, no matter how fiercely independent we are, we never find our identity within ourselves. We must always look outside for identity, to our group fit and loves. We're becoming like what we see. 
We're becoming like what we worship. In Facebook terms, we become like what we like. If we worship idols, we become like idols. If I'm shaped by escape to the country, as stupid as that sounds, I'll become a guy who lives my life for comfort and pleasure. Jesus has more for me than that. The king is coming. He's coming quickly. He's coming to sort out the brokenness of our world, and you're not ready for him. You look more like the culture in which you live than you do the God whom you're called to represent, and you need to repent. That's John's message. And I wonder if his message for me would be any different. I don't know about you. And here's why the people need to repent. Let's go back to the passage. John says this, look, guys, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. He will burn up the chaff, though, with unquenchable fire. The king is coming. He's coming quickly. He's coming to heal the brokenness of the world. And you're not ready for him. And when he comes, well, firstly, he's going to come with the Holy Spirit. Oh, that's wonderful. The life and power of God. Woo! But he's also coming with fire. What does fire do? It cleanses. It purifies. It burns up rubbish. If, if God were to come with fire now, what might that look like? I was trying to think of an example to help us feel this in a different way. I was reminded of a, a sermon I was in many years ago now, where it was one of those sermons, um, you never hear them here, but they do exist, where about 15 minutes in, you're just really bored and going to sleep. You know, you've, you've never had a sermon like that here, but like, everyone's kind of dozing off in the room. And uh, the preacher then suddenly says, I want you to put your hands up if you've ever committed sexual sin. And suddenly, nobody's dozing off anymore, okay? Now, just to reassure you, I'm not going to do that here, Okay. Uh, but of course, this is church, and these are Christians, and everybody is trapped in this dilemma with like, I kind of want to be honest, but I don't want anyone to think I've ever committed sexual sins. So everyone's kind of doing this with their hands in the room, like, I'm honest, but I'm scratching my ear. And there's this really awkward pause. And then the preacher says this, I'll tell you this for free. You didn't do that with your mum watching. And there's this awkward, slightly creepy silence in the room. And everyone's wondering, what point is he trying to make? Here's the point he's trying to make. I want you to imagine you're a teenager. And your parents have just walked in. And they've caught you doing something that you shouldn't. Like maybe you're just watching a movie. And it's a good movie. And the one dodgy scene in the movie comes on. And your mum or dad walk in. What happens in that moment? There's this kind of awkwardness. This self-awareness that right now, right here is not my best life. It almost is like, ah, this is like burning, kind of like, this isn't how it should be. This isn't how I should be. Uh, I witnessed this in the life of Christchurch London um, many years ago. One of my favorite Christchurch London anecdotes. Uh, we started the church about uh, 20 years ago. Uh, this service is only a few years old. Uh, but Christchurch London is about, about 20 years old, uh, 19 to be precise, and um, in the early days, I wasn't working for the church. It was full of like young people. We had one service in central London. And uh, we thought we'd do a few socials to help people like get to know each other. And uh, one of the socials we did was we booked a boat trip to go down the River Thames. 
And uh, we, we sold tickets. We sold out pretty much uh, immediately. All the tickets were gone. We got the dress code. We got the food and drink. It's going to be an amazing night. Uh, the one thing uh, no one thought to do was vet the DJ. Like, no one thought to go to the DJ and like, mate, this is like a church thing. Okay, bear that in mind with your music choices, all right? Mainly Christians here. Watch it. So the boat trip starts. We leave the dock. You've got young people like me. Whoa, we're ready to party. DJ starts. Uh, we're all going onto the dance floor. Um, the first two songs, and I'm not making this up, were number one, I want to have sex on the beach, followed by number two, horny, 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 which um, for anyone who's new is not a word I normally use in a Christchurch London sermon, okay? Now, I don't mean to be rude, but I have never seen the members of Christchurch London look more awkward. Like the music starts up, we're like, yeah, onto the dance floor. I want to have sex. On. Oh, there's the leaders. I'm not really a beach kind of guy, really. I'm not more of a city guy, you know. Yeah, party. Haunted. No, 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 no. Now, what's happening? The presence of someone else in the room is bringing this kind of self-awareness like, right here, right now is not my best life. Maybe I shouldn't quite be doing this. Maybe these lyrics aren't quite right somehow. Now, here's the point. If that's what the holiness of my mum is like, what on earth is the holiness of God like? Like, if, if God were to come here, ju just indulge me for a moment. Let's just imagine the presence and glory of God came right here, right now, in ways that we have never experienced before. Like, what would our reaction be? If you look at those rare moments in the Bible where people come face to face with God, you don't really see people lifting their hands and saying, Daddy, love me. Often, you see people on their knees before God saying, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Because the presence of God brings this awareness of, oh, hang on, I'm not living for him, heart and soul. Maybe in parts of my life, I look less like the God I'm called to represent and more like the culture in which I live. What about you? If revival's coming, if revival's coming, are we ready? For I'm sure some of you at least have seen what's happening in uh, Kentucky right now in a place called Asbury. Um, seemingly, something akin to revival, and I hate to give it a label, is kind of happening there right now. You might want to go and read about it. I've got a couple of pictures uh, coming up on the screen of what's happening there. They're now in like the 10th or 11th day of continuous meetings. They just gathered one morning to pray and it felt like the presence and glory of God showed up in ways that they've never seen before. And they're praying and they're worshipping and they're weeping. Do you know how it started? It started with somebody going to the front and confessing their sin. I'm, I'm not right before God. And I need to stay, say sorry. And the presence of God, and like people just don't want to leave. You ever been in a church meeting that you just don't want to leave? Just want to, I wouldn't it be amazing if we gathered here one Sunday and people like, I, I just can't leave. His presence is so intoxicating. It's like God's here. But what would I be like? I wonder whether I'd be on my knees saying, God, I'm sorry. There's corners of my life that I need to say sorry and give to you again. There's things I'm living for and chasing that are not fully you. If revival's coming, am I ready? 
And here's the promise, here's the good news. If I turn to God, if I repent, there's a promise in Luke 3 of change. Um, we talked about the genealogy a couple of weeks ago. There's one thing I didn't share, um, but I, I will share now. Um, there's lots of um, son of, son of, son of um, metaphors in, in Luke 3. You think you're children of Abraham, you're actually children of snakes. The genealogy in the second half of Luke 3 is very rare. It's not just rare in the Bible, it's rare in all genealogies in the ancient world. Now, there are examples of this, it's not like the only one, but it's very unusual. Most genealogies are father of, 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 because who your dad is really matters. This genealogy, very unusually, is son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, all the way through to son of God. Why? Well, a number of reasons. We looked at some two weeks ago, but here's a couple. Firstly, the person that's coming in Jesus Christ is in the image of God. He's not in the likeness of Abraham. doesn't look like the culture, certainly. He's in the likeness of God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. But here's the implicit promise. You follow him. You give your life to him. You get made into his likeness. You become in the likeness of Christ. That's the problem. If I repent, it doesn't need to be a big, heavy moment. I get made into the likeness of Christ. I've seen this happen. Like I've shared this before. When I first came to faith, I was in my teens. And the first moment I knew, oh, something's happened here, is I went to my mum and I just said, Mum, do you want any help? Can I help around the house? And I still remember her face. She's like, Who are you? What have you done with my son? You know, Joy, my wife Joy, um, she became a Christian. Uh, she's not from a Christian family at all. And she'll freely tell you the first thing that happened when she started following Jesus is she just stopped swearing. And you know what's interesting to me? No one told her. She wasn't in a sermon saying, you know, swearing, cut that out. Like, she didn't need to be in that. She came close to God and she just realized that part of my life needs to change. But the promise is, as I turn to Jesus... I come into his likeness. And the closer I get, the more like him I become. That's Luke 3. The king is coming. He's coming soon. He's coming to heal the brokenness of our world and you're not ready. You look more like the culture than you do the God that you're called to represent. But turn to him now. And therein is the promise of change. And so all I want to do to finish is just leave a moment where I just invite the Holy Spirit to come. And I'm just going to leave a moment of stillness. And if it's basically a moment for you and God. But I want to encourage you in this moment to pray one or two things. Either God, send revival. Let your kingdom come. What you're doing in Asbury, would you do here? Oh, we, I just look at the news. We need you. Or secondly, maybe God will bring to mind parts of your life where you know that has to change. Can I ask us to stand? Can I invite the band up? Would that be okay? So Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. Holy Spirit of God. Come draw close now. And where there are parts of our lives that are not fully devoted to you. Where we're not ready for the coming of a king. We want to say we're so sorry.
in this moment, for some at least, there'll be things that are coming to mind. Just in your heart, repent. This doesn't need to be a heavy moment. The Bible tells us it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. He loves you so much. He wants relationship with you. So where you know idols have got your heart, just say no more. Where the narratives of the age have shaped you more than the coming king. Just renounce them. Come Holy Spirit. And I just want to ask in this brief moment of worship now, that we would know your closeness in ways that we have not before. As we give ourselves to you again, would you draw close to us? Come, Holy Spirit.